Uh, to get started this morning, in just a second, I want us to look at a short video. Have you heard of the marshmallow test? Uh, where four-year-olds were offered an opportunity, right, to, to eat one marshmallow now, or if they waited a period of time and didn't eat it, they would be given a second marshmallow as well. Let's take a look. Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right. So what the researchers did, they did this experiment um, a number of years ago, and then they followed these kids into adulthood. And they found significant differences between the kids who had the self-control to not eat the marshmallows and, and those who, who ate them right away. And, and the kids who had the self-control at four years old grew up <laughs> to be more likely to achieve their life goals, to do better in relationships, even to do better on the SATs. and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? Yeah. You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you to give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. <laughs> All right, so uh, there, there's, there's some strategies for self-control or not. <laughs> so self-control matters a lot. Um, we know that as teens and adults uh, because life is full of marshmallows. And if I'm uh, craving chocolate, for example, and I just had a piece an hour ago, and I can hold off and not have another piece now, I'm, over the course of my life, going to be healthier. If I really want that new gadget, or I'm dreaming about that new car, but I can hold off buying it this year because I don't really need it this year, then I'm going to be in better shape financially. Um, if I really want alcohol or sex or to play another level of that video game, but I can control those desires, I'm going to save myself a lot of trouble. I'm going to build a stronger life. Uh, if I'm boiling over with anger for a, or toward a family member or a teacher or a boss, but I can control my emotions and I can not mouth off at them or haul off and hit them, things are going to go better in my life. Uh, if I can get myself out of bed in the morning on time or, or get myself off to the gym or, or force myself to put in that extra time studying, I'm going to live a more productive life. Self-control, it, it matters a great deal uh, to how well our lives turn out. And, and that's one reason that God challenges us to get it and to put it to use. 
We're going to be thinking about self-control this morning as we continue our series on the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, what we've been doing each week as we've been going through the character qualities uh, which are the fruit of the Spirit is that we've been beginning with God and, and God's character and God's example. Um, and we've been looking at how God exhibits that character trait. And then we've been reminding ourselves that God wants us to be like him, to, to imitate him, to have his character. But self-control is a tough one because... Does God really need to have self-control? I mean, God does not eat marshmallows. Uh, God's not human. God doesn't have a human body or a fleshly nature. God doesn't um, sleep in too late in the morning or a struggle with lust or play video games. So what does God know about self-control? Well, here's something to think about. Self-control isn't just about controlling negative or potentially destructive desires. Self-control means controlling positive desires too. Because, listen carefully, positive desires become negative when we don't control them appropriately. And positive desires become negative when they keep us from loving the people that we're called to love. Example. Maybe you have a positive desire to, to see things neat and clean and beautiful. You have an eye for beauty. You, you like things in their place. You hate clutter. And that's a good desire. That quality can, can bless other people. It can uh, uh, make order out of chaos. It can make beauty out of messes. Um, it, it can bring needed structure and, and organization to clutter and disarray. But that positive desire can become a problem when you start looking down on people who are messy. Uh, when you start controlling people in your family and nagging them because they make messes. When you get a reputation for being so super clean that other people are afraid to invite you over to their houses which are messy because they're embarrassed of what you'll think of them. Being neat and clean, loving beauty is a good trait until it separates you from other people and keeps you from loving those you're called to love. So even positive desires and traits need us to be in control of them so that they don't get out of hand and keep us from loving others. And in this regard, God most definitely is an example for us of self-control. For example, God has a good desire to give good gifts to his children. But what if God couldn't control this desire? What if God couldn't help just spoiling his children with blessing after blessing? You think, oh, that, that'd be pretty good. But imagine all the Christians were just spoiled princes and princesses who, who threw a tantrum whenever they didn't immediately get whatever they wanted and God couldn't help just rushing in and giving it to us. Or, or what about God's good desire to protect his children from bad things? What if God couldn't control this desire, and so like an overprotective parent, God was, was always rushing in to save us from every dumb choice we made? Well, like any overprotected child, we'd have no freedom to learn or grow, and, and we'd never mature. Or what about God's good heart for justice? God hates to see innocent people get victimized by other. In fact, God hates it enough that God gets angry at injustice. And that's a good thing. 
It's good that God gets angry when rogue combatants shoot down airplanes full of innocent civilians. It's good when God gets angry that a drunk driver cut short the life of a young mother with three small children. In cases like that, it's good to get angry. And C.S. Lewis reflects on this really helpfully in his book on the Psalms. He grapples with the, the imprecatory psalms, the, the psalms that are filled with, with rage against enemies who are, who are doing wicked things, the psalms which, which beg God just to bash their brains out. And, and Lewis points out that this vindictive anger expressed in these psalms is certainly wrong when it wishes violence on others, but it's not as wrong as not getting angry at all because you don't really care about right and wrong. And Lewis explains that this realization struck him when he was riding on a train early in the Second World War. And there were a bunch of British soldiers on the train, and, and they were discussing British newspaper reports that the Nazis were committing great atrocities. And, and these cynical soldiers were, were just talking together, and they were concluding, ah, these reports are just propaganda to motivate us to fight. You know, they're just made-up stuff. And they laughed it off. And Lewis reflects, the shattering thing was that believing this, these soldiers expressed not the slightest anger. That our rulers should falsely attribute the worst of crimes to some of their fellow men in order to induce others of their fellow men to shed their blood seemed to them a matter of course. They weren't even particularly interested. They saw nothing wrong in it. And Lewis is saying that if these British soldiers really thought that, that their government officials were lying about Nazi atrocities, it should um, or it would have been more moral for these soldiers to be outraged at what their government was doing. It's good and appropriate to get angry when wicked things happen. And God has plenty of righteous anger. God gets angry about the right things. But thankfully, God has self-control. God is in control of his anger. That's what today's psalm is about, Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a, quite a long psalm, which tells the story of God and his people. And it recounts how God led his people out of Egypt, through the desert, and eventually into the promised land. And it follows the story on through the period of the judges up until the time that God made David king of Israel. And the way the psalm tells the story uh, expresses how again and again God was faithful to his people. God rescued them. God cared for them. God uh, protected them. Sorry, we're having trouble with this microphone. And God cared for his people. But again and again, God's people forgot about God. They rebelled against God. They engaged in all kinds of wickednesses. And the psalm tells how God uh, feels about this as, as his people continually betray him. Um, as they repeatedly uh, turn from God's good ways to engage in idolatry and wickedness. And, and how does God feel? Well, God gets angry, rightly so. Um, God got angry that his people rejected him, that they turned their back on what was right. God got angry that his people hurt and oppressed one another, that they lost all regard for what was right. Again and again, God's people were unfaithful to him. They did what was evil, and God got angry at them. 
And sometimes God in his anger punished his people, and sometimes God did not. We see that in our text, verses 32 to 39. In verse 32, we read, in spite of all this, that is, in spite of all that God had done to bless his people, to protect his people, to to care for his people, in spite of all this, they kept on sinning. In spite of his wonders, his people did not believe. Verse 33, so God ended their days in futility and their years in terror. Whenever God slew them, they would seek him. They eagerly turned to him again. So here's the pattern we see in in these first few verses that we're looking at this morning. The people turn away from God. God gets angry and punishes them. They're sorry and they turn back to him again. God gets angry. God acts on his anger, and as a result, his people turn to him again. But that's not the only pattern we see in the psalm. If you go down to verse 36, we see a different pattern there. We read, But then they would flatter God with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. But look how God responds this time in verse 38. Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. This is a different pattern, right? In this pattern, the people still turn from God and God still gets angry, but God does not act on his anger this time. Instead, God restrains his anger. God has mercy on his people. He dials down his wrath, realizing, I guess, in these cases that punishing his people so severely isn't going to do them any good. And God, in compassion, doesn't want to see them suffer. Aren't you glad that God has (laughs) self-control? Aren't you glad that God is in full control of his anger? When God wants to give vent to his anger... He gives it vent in just the right way, in a just way, in a wise way, in an appropriate way. And when God chooses to restrain his anger, God is able to hold it back and to treat his people compassionately instead. God has complete self-control. Isn't that a good thing? (laughs) How different from the gods of of the Greeks or or the Romans in their mythology who are driven by petty jealousies and who hold grudges, who who fly off the handle in moments of rage. They they exact cruel vengeance on those who anger them. They, They don't seem to be able to control their passions. It's never that way with the God of the Bible. The Lord is in full control, not only of his anger, but of all of his other desires as well. And so God is always able to do what is right and good in the wisest way. And when God comes into our lives and puts his Holy Spirit in us, the fruit of that spirit is that God gives us self-control as well. We're God's children. God is remaking us into his image. And so God is helping us to control all of our desires like God is able to control his desires. So by way of application, let's answer two questions about self-control. 
what does self-control look like in practice for us, and how do we get it? So first, what does self-control look like practically? We've already talked about obvious examples, like where we say no to our cravings and our lusts and our destructive desires. Um, and when we, we say yes to good choices, like eating our spinach and going to the gym, right? <laughs> uh, but, but what about some less obvious examples of self-control? Like, like not telling that, that juicy piece of gossip that's on the tip of our tongues. Or... Um, or willing ourselves off the couch to, to serve that loved one who's overwhelmed, even though we'd rather sit and watch them do all the work? Or uh, what about willing ourselves to tell the truth when we're, we're afraid and so it's tempting to cover it up? <clears throat> also, often self-control involves wrestling with our, our negative feelings and, and not letting them get out of hand, our, our crankiness or our frustration or our discouragement. The late author and speaker Brendan Manning, who hailed from New Orleans, um, tells about a time that he struggled to control his negative feelings. And, and as you listen to this story, uh, notice all the strategies that he uses to exercise self-control and how when one strategy fails, he, he doesn't give up. He tries another. During a writing session early one morning, he says, For no apparent reason, a pervasive sense of gloom settled in my soul. I stopped writing and I sat down to read the early chapters of the manuscript. I got so discouraged I considered abandoning the whole project. I, I left the house to get the inspection done on the, the car to get it renewed. The office was closed. I decided I needed exercise. After jogging two miles on the levee, a thunderstorm hurled sheets of rain and a howling wind almost blew me into the Mississippi River. I sat down in the tall grass, vaguely aware of clinging to a nail-scarred hand. I returned to the office cold and, and soaked, only to get a phone call from Rosalind, my wife, that led to a conflict. My feelings were running rampant, frustration, anger, resentment, fear, self-pity, depression. I repeated to myself, I am not my feelings. No relief. I tried, this too shall pass. It didn't. At six that night, emotionally drained and physically spent, I plopped down in a soft chair. I began to pray the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner, seeking out his life-giving spirit. Slowly but perceptibly, I awakened to his sacred presence. The loneliness continued, but grew gentle. The sadness endured, but felt light. Anger and resentment vanished. A hard day? Yes. Rattled and unglued, yes. Unable to cope, no. That's what we want, right? We've all had days like that. Sometimes weeks or months or years like that. We want the inner strength to cope, to, to not be defeated, to, to live noble lives, loving lives, in, in control of ourselves, come what may. So, second question, how do we get it? How do we grow in self-control? Well, here's the thing. It's, it's a gift of God. It's, it's a fruit. It's, um, it's a fruit that his Holy Spirit grows in our hearts, right? That's what our passage in Galatians is telling us. But like any gift, we can leave it in the closet to collect dust, or we can unwrap it and put it to use. It reminds me of a story I read in a book called The Scent of a Leader, where a woman once has a dream 
um, in which she wanders into a shopping mall and she finds Jesus behind the counter in one of the, the shops. And, and he says, you can have anything your heart desires. And uh, this woman, astounded but pleased, uh, asks for peace and for love and for happiness and for wisdom and for freedom from fear. We could add self-control. And then she adds, not just for me, but for the whole earth. And Jesus smiles and says, I think you misunderstand me. We don't sell fruits, only seeds. The, the fruit of self-control Jesus is giving us by his spirit begins like a seed that we can choose to nurture and grow or we can choose to ignore. So how do we nurture it? How does self-control grow? Well, let me give you two ways that some of the spiritual masters have, have counseled to be helpful. Uh, these two almost seem like opposites because one is negative and one is positive. One involves fasting and denying yourself, and the other involves partaking and enjoying. So first, fasting and self-denial. Author and missionary Mike Breen points out that our desires are like children inside of us. And the thing is, if you don't say no to any of them, you'll find yourselves, yourself overrun by them. Um, but, but if you learn to say no to, to at least one of them to start, it's like they all hear that, they all see that, and they know that the Spirit's working in you, creating the capacity to say no to all of them. And so actually, by saying no to one of them, you're empowering yourself to say no to all of them. And, and so Breen quotes Dallas Willard, who advises, say no to the things you can, so that you can learn to say no to the things that right now you can't. So, so here's the point. If you build your spiritual muscles by saying no to one thing, those muscles will help you say no to other things. Let me give you an analogy. I play softball in the summer. And, and one of the most common softball energies, or injuries is the rotator cuff in your shoulder. Because... Uh, um, most of us aren't using those muscles for, for most things we do. And, and so we get out there in the spring and, and we start throwing that heavy ball and it's easy to tear those muscles. Uh, and so a couple months before the season begins, what I've learned to do is to do some exercises to strengthen those muscles. Um, that way, when I get on the field in April, I have the strength to throw the ball without damaging my shoulder. The point is that the muscles you strengthen by doing one exercise are there to serve you well for doing another, right? Makes sense? That's simple. So how do we strengthen our spiritual muscles to increase our self-control? Well, that's one of the purposes of the spiritual discipline of fasting. Uh, whether it's a traditional fast of going without food for a time or, or whether it's saying no to some other desire that you can say no to that you have the self-control to say no to, practicing that. Saying no to something you desire builds your muscles of self-control. And as you build them up, over time, you start to find you're more able to say no to the desires that right now you find too hard to control. And so fasting, giving something up, is, is a way to nourish and to grow that seed of self-control that the Holy Spirit has given you. A second way to grow self-control is, is to pick a desire that you struggle with and then to pursue its opposite. 
to cultivate a taste for its opposite. So, for example, um, well, before I give you a, a couple examples, actually, let me give you an analogy to help explain this. If you've read um, The Odyssey by Homer, um, you may remember the sirens, right? They're these, these mythical, uh, mythological, beautiful female creatures who, whose enchanting singing would lead passing sailors toward the rocks where they would meet their destruction. And um, when, when Odysseus in the Odyssey and his men pass by the sirens, they, they are prepared for this problem. And so what they do is they fill their ears with wax um, so that they're not lured to their deaths. But not, not Odysseus. He has to hear the singing. And, and so um, he, what he does is he has his men lash him to the mast really tightly. And he says, no matter how much I struggle, no matter how much I plead, do not set me free from the mast. And, and in this way, they pass by safely. Contrast that with another classic story of Jason and the Argonauts. Um, their way of getting past the sirens is different. Jason gets the great lyre player, Orpheus, to join him on his voyage on his ship and to play as they're passing the sirens. And so as they're passing, Orpheus plays and his music is so beautiful, it captures all those on board and drowns out the song of the sirens. Do you see the difference between Odysseus and Jason? It's one thing to struggle against our desires. It's another thing to pursue another better desire instead and let that drown out the desire we're struggling with. So a couple examples now. If I struggle with greed, if, if I love money a little bit too much, and, and I love possessing things, I can begin to gain control over this desire to possess and to, to acquire by practicing its opposite, which is generosity. I can research, I can develop an interest in a couple of charities or, or ministries and begin donating to them regularly. I can uh, look for needs that come up around me and, and give to those needs and, and try to find joy in helping other people. I can begin to practice and grow in generosity um, and if I can learn to find delight in this, then I may find it easier to control my greed. Second example, maybe I'm having trouble laying off a certain pleasure. Uh, maybe it's a certain food. I know uh, with guys, often it's porn. Um, and it's hard to sit there on the couch doing nothing and tell yourself, I'm not going to eat the ice cream in the kitchen. Right? I'm not going to eat the chocolate fudge sundae ice cream that's right there in the freezer. Uh, the cold ice cream, boy, it's a hot day, right? Or, or I'm not going to go over to the computer and look at the porn. It's really hard to not do something when all you're doing is thinking about it. So what can we do? Well, ahead of time, we can come up with an option B that we're going to choose instead of option A. Um, and then we're going to choose that option when we start to struggle. For example, I can decide ahead of time when I crave ice cream, I'm going to choose flavored seltzer water instead. And I can make sure the fridge is always stocked with a couple of bottles of cold seltzer. And so when I start craving ice cream, I go right to the fridge, I pour myself a cold glass, and I enjoy it. It's cold, it's refreshing. Um, Luke's not buying that. Oh, well. <laughs> Um, or I can decide ahead of time 
um, that when I'm tempted to look at porn, I'm, I'm not going to sit there on the couch and wrestle with myself about it. No, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do something I enjoy instead. And ahead of time, I've decided what that's going to be. Maybe it's to work on a hobby. Maybe it's to write to a good friend. Whatever it is that we find pleasurable. The key is choosing a positive pleasure instead of the negative one and getting your mind off of the negative one. Thanks. Um, is that flavored seltzer water? <laughs> Rats. Um, the, the key is getting our mind off of the negative one and enjoying something positive instead. Um, and of course, God wants to be our ultimate positive pleasure. Um, and so taking time, whether it's in the moment of struggle or, or, or whether it's at other times, to be reflecting on and getting in touch with our desire for God and all that God means to us is important and very helpful too. And then we can tell ourselves, then we can tell God, God, I desire you. I desire pleasing you more than I desire those other things. Okay, so two strategies, a negative one, a positive one. You may find one more helpful than the other. You may find both of them helpful. But, but listen to me, these strategies are not a magic bullet or an instant solution. Um, especially in the case of, of real addictions where more help may be needed. But, but both of these spiritual strategies are ways to nurture that seed. They're ways to, to provide a soil, an environment in your soul, in your heart, in your life for self-control to be able to grow. You've got to practice it. You've got to work at it. Self-control is something that, that you get better at with time as you practice working those muscles. It's a gift. It's, it's an ability that the Holy Spirit is already giving you if you're a follower of Jesus but it has to be grown, it has to be nurtured so that you get better at it. And that's what God wants. God wants, um, wants us to have the, self, the same self-control over our desires, over our emotions that God has over his. Which will allow us, like God, to act rightly, to act wisely, to act appropriately so that we're a blessing and so that we live healthy, blessed, and loving lives. Let's pray. God, um, we're focusing this summer on your character. And you've promised us in, in Galatians that you, through your spirit, are bearing fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Yet we do recognize it doesn't just happen automatically. And so we pray uh, in regard to self-control this morning that you'd give us the desire to just not be driven by every desire and impulse that we have, but the desire to become spiritually strong, to be in control of our desires to direct them, to manage them in ways that are good for us and a blessing to other people. We thank you that you have perfect self-control and we pray that you would teach us to grow in that as well. Amen.